Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Peter, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. Oh, hello there. I am your humble but mad prophet of the airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions from the Underground for Friday, June the 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2022. We made it, Jacob. We made it through another week. Everyone, give your hand yourselves a round of applause. Well, this is uh, disappointing. We just went through two years of hell, four lockdowns, School closures, thousands of first responders and other workers suspended without pay or fired. A healthcare system pushed past the breaking point. Think of the businesses destroyed, the lives destroyed, the abuse of our children. 
the isolation of our elderly, people who were denied their rights to visit a dying friend or relative or simply visit a, a sick friend in hospital. I mean, I could go on and on. You know the drill, what has transpired over the last two years. All of the things I just mentioned were unnecessary. The result of the actions of the Radical Progressive Party in Ontario, which is all to say this should have been the most important provincial election, certainly in decades, maybe a lifetime. It certainly was, uh, I consider it to be, the most important election in my lifetime. The voter turnout should have been historic, 80 or 90 percent. Instead, just 4.6 million out of 10.7 million eligible voters even bothered to cast a vote. That's 42 percent of voters. 42 the lowest voter turnout in Ontario election history. That's pathetic. Which means the radical progressive party of Doug Ford was handed a supermajority of 82 seats out of a possible 124. And they received just over 41% of the possible vote. So, break it down. 41% of the 43% of people who actually voted That means what? 20% of all eligible Ontario voters voted for the Radical Progressive Party. Not a good sign for democracy. I guess I should have anticipated such a low voter turnout. I mean, Jacob, did you see any lawn signs in your neighborhood? I didn't see very many in mine. Very few. Okay, you saw a few. All right. I saw lots of signs on public property along the sides of the road, but very few on on lawns. And we didn't have one candidate or even a volunteer come canvassing at our door. And I checked with the neighbors, same thing. It's like there wasn't even an election. Maybe that's what the radical progressive party of Doug Ford was counting on. Although, I would have thought a low voter turnout would have hurt the PCs. Anyway, I'll be talking more, obviously, about the provincial election uh, a little bit later this hour and in hour two. I'm sure many of you will be going to the movies this weekend to watch Top Gun. Have you seen it, Jacob? You saw it? Or are you going this weekend? You already saw it. I saw it yesterday. Ah, it's it's fantastic, isn't it? Fantastic. I saw it last weekend, loved it. But there's another movie, a documentary, I'm actually looking forward to watching. It's by American conservative commentator Matt Walsh, the host of the Matt Walsh Show podcast on The Daily Wire. I I, I think Matt is terrific. And the documentary is called What is a Woman? It's described as one man's journey to answer the question of a generation. It is indeed a question of a generation. It's a question I ask politicians, for example, who come on this program. I ask them to define what a woman is. It's one simple answer. A woman is a biological adult female human. A woman has a uterus. A woman can give birth. Only a woman can breastfeed. So this is a documentary I hope everybody watches. The left does not want you to see it. And here's a clip that might explain why. Male gametes. That's what makes me male. No, your your sperm don't make you male. Then what does? It's a constellation. In reality, in truth, okay? Whose truth are we talking about? 
The same truth that says we're sitting in this room right now, you and I. No, you're not listening. If I, if I see a chicken laying eggs and I say that's a female chicken laying eggs, did I assign female or am I just observing a physical reality that's happening in the world? Does a chicken have gender identity? Does a chicken cry? Well, a Does chi- a chicken commit suicide? Let's frame it because you're talking, you're trying. A chicken to, has sex like any, like any biological organism. A chicken has organism. an assigned gender, but a chicken doesn't have a gender identity. So we assign female to chickens when they lay eggs? That's a, we that's, assume they're female if they lay eggs. Oh, boy. That's a perfect example of why the left does not want you to see Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman? Because you'll see how divorced from reality the left is in this regard. They expose themselves. They deny basic biology in their defense of transgender activism. They deny truth. The woman you just heard in that clip is a dean at Brown Medical School. I kid you not. So go see What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. It's available online. It premiered Wednesday at the, uh, on the Daily Wire. And apparently, the Daily Wire's website, where you, uh, again, where you can stream this documentary, was the target of a cyber attack, a malicious cyber attack. Further proof, the left does not want you to see this movie. Therefore, you should see this movie, What is a Woman, by Matt Walsh. Now, if only... If only we had two or three dozen conservative politicians like U.S. Representative Lauren Brobert from Colorado's 3rd District. Madam Speaker, I want to begin this evening by thanking my Democrat colleagues for their outstanding work in encouraging millions of Americans to celebrate their Second Amendment rights by purchasing their first, second, or even 100th firearm. From the left's riots in cities across America to Biden's threats to strip away our basic constitutional rights, Democrats are single-handedly responsible for the sale of tens of millions of firearms. Bravo. Well done. And I hear that the interest has begun to peak when it comes to the sale of F-15s. Now, I have some questions for these freedom haters. When are you going to call on the chief executive, the basement dweller, to hold his own son accountable for his gun crimes? Hunter Biden lied on a federal firearms application, which is punishable by up to 10 years and a $250,000 fine, of which 10% will not be going to the big guy. Rules for thee, but not for my crackhead, parmesan-smoking, gun criminal son. Oh, wow. Oh, what can I say? I'm a fan. What can I say? Can you imagine, again, if the Conservative Party of Canada had one even one Lauren Brobert in the house or five or 10 male or female makes no difference. And of course she's absolutely correct. Whenever the basement dweller, as she called the president starts make starts rumbling about gun control, millions of Americans, Republicans, Democrats, independents, doesn't matter. Millions of Americans rush out and buy more guns because Americans understand that a trillion guns in the hands of the civilian population is what truly stands between a free America and, well, a northern version of Venezuela, which is where Canada is headed. Guns are not just for hunting. 
They're not just for personal protection. A well-armed citizenry is a deterrent to authoritarianism. When only the government has guns, that's a recipe for tyranny. When the people are afraid of their government, as Thomas Jefferson said, that's tyranny. When the government is afraid of the people, that's democracy. Uh, Well, he also said that occasionally the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of tyrants. I'm just going to leave that one there. All right. I'm just looking behind me on the shelves. I have room for just one more Edward R. Murrow Award. And then that's it. And after today, I'll have to start giving them away to uh, the lesser talk shows across the country. Uh, Tail end of the program, the New Blue Party of Ontario did not elect any MPPs last night. They did get over 125,000 votes. So where does this upstart right-of-center party go from here? Jim Carajalio's new blue leader uh, will be here last order of business. Greg Carrasco, host of the Greg Carrasco Show, will be here second hour as well. A prominent Arizona Democrat has been charged in a vote fraud scheme in the 2020 U.S. election, which lends credence, I would say, to the Dinesh D'Souza film 2000 Mules. Art Moore from WND will be here also hour two. More on the provincial election with Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. And then this hour, the Lim Riddler is here with this week's Lim Riddle. The sofa cinephile Jim Salas unpacks the 4K version of the most watched film in movie history. But coming up first, National Post columnist Barbara Kay in defense of Jordan Peterson. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Friday, June 3rd. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. You're probably aware that Canadian social critic, cultural critic Jordan Peterson caused quite a uh, Shinola storm, let's say, on Twitter recently after uh, taking a gander at the full-bodied swimsuit model, Yumi Nu, who donned the cover of last month's Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. And uh, to quote from a recent, uh, or today's uh, National Post from Barbara Kay, he commented, Sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. The backlash was so swift and so harsh that Peterson announced he would be quitting the social network. Barbara Kay, again, columnist at the National Post and the Post Millennial and co-author of Unsporting, How Transactivism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. Barbara, welcome back. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. Good to be with you again. Likewise, likewise. Why did you feel compelled to uh, come to the defense, let's say, of Jordan Peterson? You know, I, I, it was my lead. I, I used that uh, incident as a lead-in, and it was actually, uh, it was just a handy lead, and I knew that <laughs> whenever you say Jordan's name, it gets attention. Uh, but the fact is that I had had strong a strong reaction to that cover as well, but I didn't have, I would never have had the the guts to do what Jordan did and just say, sorry, not beautiful. I think, you know, it, it was it was he might have been a little more diplomatic and said and said uh, everyone to their own taste. This isn't mine or something like that. 
But uh, the fact that it created a bit of a storm gave me a good lead because this whole notion of, of fat phobia, um, fat studies, fat positivity, this is a, this is a topic that, that has come up many times in the last couple of decades. And each time I have a real bad feeling about it because it's, it's politicizing. Uh, it's politicizing um, an issue that I really... When it's politicized, it's the, the health aspect of of being overweight is always played down, and and so what happens is you're not allowed to say it's not a good thing to be overweight because then people will say you're either misogynistic or you're racist because uh, overweight uh, over you know over over obesity is more of. Uh, is more observable in some communities than others. Right. And so now people are saying, because, you know, there's a lot of uh, girls and women in the black community that are heavy and they don't mind it. And black men don't mind it. That for you to say to you, for you to make a value judgment about it, that's so it's racist, even to use the word obesity. And this, this um, I don't like this politicization uh, of an issue that is about uh, largely about health in our present. Uh, you've got little kids that are four years old that should not be fat, and they are because they don't get exercise and because they eat junk food all day long. And if you're not allowed to say that fat is a health issue um, because of uh, you're going to be labeled fat phobic. This is a serious issue, and I, I knew it was going to be very tough how I was going to approach it. So I thought I'd start with Jordan. <laughs> Let him well, it's take a terrific, lead. It's a terrific lead-in, and I, and I love the, um, the quote here from, the column, from your column. Again, Barbara Kay into, uh, in uh, today's National Post. Jordan Peterson enters rough waters in Sports Illustrated's swimsuit controversy, and uh, the logline underneath is, it isn't fair to compel people to actually affirm that they see beauty in what they find off-putting. I mean, that is it in a nutshell, isn't it? Like it, it's uh, so. For example, one person uh, who has one particular skin color, if they dislike someone of another skin color, not because of their skin color, but because of their their characters or their values or their opinions. Uh, I mean, you shouldn't be compelled to like someone or agree with someone. Uh, because of their skin color or, be, or because of because of their size or whatever, whatever reason. Well, you yes. And you you, you used uh, you quoted uh, Jordan's uh, his use of the word authoritarian. What bugged him is the same thing that bugged me. I don't if people want to be if, if they're OK with being overweight uh, and if they want to flaunt it like this uh, young model did. And if they want to uh, walk around in tight, tight, tight clothes. Uh, that aren't meant for their size, that's their business. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to comment on that. But if someone says to me, hey, look at me and admit, you tell, admit that I am just as beautiful as that model over there with the size four figure or the size six figure. And I'm not going to say it. I'm not, I don't want to have to say, um, yeah, you, there's no difference. There is no difference in in uh, in terms of attractiveness between a person who's lean and fit and a person who is absolutely overweight or obese. 
you're, 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 and the reason that that Sports Illustrated is the is the the issue focuses on that cover is because every year everybody waits for that, you know, the swimsuit issue, and it's always uh, some gorgeous model with a perfect body, a, a body that most people would agree is perfect. So now what Sports Illustrated is doing is say, well, we're in the business of, of showing you beautiful women. This year, we're showing you another beautiful woman. She just happens to be a plus size model. And then everybody who looks at the cover is um, like they're there. They're, if they say, no, she's not attractive. That's not what we're buying the magazine for. Hey, you fooled us. They can't say that. Everybody knows they can't say that. So they just shut up and say, yeah, yeah, different kind of beauty. But yeah, sure. Absolutely. So you're it's, it's like the pronouns. You're you're compelled to assent to a standard of beauty that you did. You not only do not believe, but that that you 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 wouldn't be buying the swimsuit issue every year. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If you had the idea that size doesn't matter in, in you know, no, precisely, in precisely. Yes. I mean, that's what the, that's the whole raison d'etre of, of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, as you point out. Uh, well, uh, uh, kudos to you, uh, Barbara. For uh, for this article, it's an important and it's an honest discussion that we need to have. And, um, you know, kudos to Jordan Peterson. I would agree that he could have been a little more diplomatic, but, you know, he's not obligated to be diplomatic. <laughs> uh, so thank you again, Barbara. Well, thanks for having me on, Richard, and uh, good to see you again. All right. Barbara Kay, columnist with The National Post. When we come back, we'll revisit an earlier conversation with Lori Goldstein about Trudeau's recent a gun freeze. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. We're in 
introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. All right, there you go. That was the announcement a couple days ago. Uh, The Prime Minister, anything really new in this bill? And... um, or is it just a bunch of rehashed old uh, promises? I mean, handguns are incredibly regulated already in this country. So here to uh, discuss further, our good friend and uh, Hall of Fame journalist, Toronto Sun columnist, Lori Goldstein. Hey, Lori, how are you? Good. How you doing? Very well. Thank you. So anything new in this bill, really? I mean, as I say, aren't handguns already like regulated pretty much to the max in this country? Yeah, well, the, the, the freeze, in other words, we're not going to have more than the 1.1 million legal guns we have in the country, um, is new. But there's, you know, there's a long way to go before that actually uh, takes effect or, or has any effect on on gun crime, which is really what we're talking about. Uh, so, no, yeah, on the broader thing, does this, does, will this help lower the amount of gun crime in Canada? Uh, my argument would be no, and it's because, once again, uh, the, the federal government is focusing on the group of people who do not commit gun crimes, which is legal gun owners. In fact, there's research that shows that um, Professor Gary Mauser out of Simon, uh, Simon Fraser University, that in terms of shooting homicides, uh, legal gun owners do that at about a third to maybe a half rate of the general population. In other words, no, actually the general population is more of a threat um, on gun crime to each other than illegal gun owners. So, so the problem is they put, they put this vast majority of effort into what the prime minister said in his announcement, knowing that the vast, he says, the vast majority of legal gun owners comply with all the rules and are not a threat to public safety. Uh, okay, so if that's true, then why do you? Why is your big announcement that you're going to make it? I don't know. You know, you're going to do something else to them. You know, which is not going to have any effect on gun crime. Meanwhile, um, there were a couple things we like. I supported, and the Sun supported in the legislation, such as um, uh, you know trying to get a handle on gun smuggling from the United States, because, for example. 80% of the guns used in, hand, in, in gun crime in Toronto are illegally smuggled in from the U.S. So this has no impact on that at all. Uh, what they said is they're going to enhance border security measures. Well, okay, but every time you, he makes an announcement, he says that, but we never get any data that's meaningful on is that impacting, isn't that lowering gun crime rates here, or isn't it? Like this has been going on, you know, you remember... Trudeau was going to have a national handgun ban, and then he go, no, 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 we'll have the provinces do it, and then, no, 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 we'll have the cities do it. Well, he's not doing that. He's doing this um, freeze. But the most, the most disturbing thing to me is that, okay, you're wasting all this effort on legal gun owners. Um, you're, you know, you, we obviously haven't been successful in, in reducing the flow of guns. I mean, maybe they're, they're capturing more, but that just could be because more guns are getting in. So they're getting more guns, but a lower percentage of the guns that are, are getting in. But simultaneously, the government has reduced, like, listen to these, these things. They've reduced mandatory minimum sentences, which go from one to five years for these crimes. And there's a bit of them. So let me just read them. 
using a firearm or imitation firearm in the commission of an offense, mandatory minimum gone, knowingly possessing an unauthorized firearm, mandatory minimum gone, possession of a prohibited or restricted firearm with ammunition, mandatory minimum gone, possession of a weapon obtained by the commission of an offense, mandatory minimum gone, extortion with a firearm, mandatory minimum gone, discharging a firearm with intent, mandatory minimum gone, discharging firearm recklessness, mandatory minimum uh, gone, and get this, robbery with a firearm, mandatory minimum gone. Right, those were now, part of, is that part of Bill C-5? Um, that's right, the, the one that's, it's part of the whole package, it came, it was uh, introduced again uh, late December. Um, this is done in the so, name of equity, supposedly, because certain groups are disproportionate, disproportionately represented in oh, our prison system. Well, they were specific. They talked about black people, indigenous people um, being disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And also black people and indigenous people are also disproportionately victims of gun crime. So, you you, you know, it's like you sit there and you go, um, you just like this whole thing about about, you know, this racist thing. Yeah, we know there are black criminal gangs in Toronto. Everybody knows that. And there are other criminal gangs from other, uh, and there are, there are white criminal gangs and blah, blah, blah. And, but, but, but the, what they continually avoid is that in terms of black criminal gangs in Toronto, the major people they terrorize are the vast majority of law-abiding black people. Like, yes, sometimes the, the, these gangs kill each other, but we've had kids shot to death at barbecues. We've had kids shot fatally in their homes. And so it's, to me, the real racism on that issue, and, and it's something that infuriates me, it's, it's the racism of governments that use the idea that people will think, well, as long as it's black criminals killing each other, we don't care. But that's not what it is. Increasingly, it's innocent people caught in crossfires. And you know and I know, Richard, that if that kind of carnage was going on in Forest Hill or Rosedale in Toronto year after year after year, we would have sent in the army by now. Precisely. So, Laurie, so i got to take a quick time out. We'll come back yeah, and sure. talk some more. Laurie Goldstein, Toronto Sun. Sure Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Lori Goldstein stays with us, Toronto Sun columnist, talking about the uh, new lib- liberal uh, gun proposed gun legislation. Um, these these bills, obviously, they take a lot of time to uh, to put together and to craft and so forth. So you know, this didn't happen overnight. But I'm wondering if, whether it was ready to go. It was just sitting there, waiting for the right time. And the uh, the massacre at Ovalde, Texas, Rob Elementary School. Uh, was the time. And if that's the case, I mean, that's just beyond cynical, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, but it also happened in, in, with the abortion issue when it came out that, you know, this leak that the Supreme Court of the United States was going to strike down Roe versus Wade, the, the, Trudeau came out with it. Look, look, Trudeau is a, a dramatist. I mean, we all know that. He was a drama teacher, right? And so he times what he considers to be the perfect entrance onto the stage to say these things. Uh, people like you and me will say it's cynical. People who support him will say that it, it, it's, um, you know, it's effective and it's smart politics. But either way, that, that's what happens. Um, I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Um, uh, every time, like, remember back when Trump did the thing about who was going to be allowed in the United States and who wasn't? And he did that quote about, you know, Canada welcomes everybody, which caused a whole, you know, influx of 
people at the Roxham Road thing into Canada, and, and, and the continuing problem for cities as more and more people came in, because the Prime Minister of Canada had incorrectly said that anybody who winds up, you know, winds up with a foot in Canada gets to stay here. Um, I mean, we have a very bad system for assessing that, but that's not true. So, so this is what he does, uh, and this is what is, I think, more his handlers do, you know. Um, and also remember, this is also a wedge against the Conservatives. I, I mean, that's what the real agenda is here, and it's the same agenda over and over again. It, it's it's to divide Conservatives, and that's why ultimately. It's so ineffective. Now, to be fair, there are a few things that I and the Toronto Sun support uh, in this latest package. One thing was for people who were involved in smuggling and this kind of stuff, they're going to they're going to increase the maximum penalty uh, from 10 years to 14 years. Okay, we support that with a qualification, which is number one. Well, how many people get the 10 years right now? I, I mean, in other words, part of this is how are the courts treating these gun offenders. Um, so, so you know, to tell us you're going from 10 to 14 on the maximum tells us nothing unless you tell us what percentage of people get the maximum and how effective has that been in lowering gun crime. So, again, it's always the, like, and even we go, okay, okay, good. That's better than nothing. But you haven't given us the information we need to know whether it's going to be significant. There are a couple other things we agree with. For example, if, if you're a legal gun owner, but you've been um, uh, convicted of domestic assault or stalking, or there's credible evidence from a family member that someone may be a danger to themselves or someone else um, from having a gun, because the concern there isn't just shooting somebody else, it's using a gun to commit suicide. Um, you know, there's going to be a new process to try and red flag those people. Okay, th- that's fine. I mean, I mean, we that kind of stuff we get, but but what it doesn't change to me is that this government continues to to put absurd restriction. I mean, you know, like handguns in Canada have have been restricted in some way since registered since 1934. Um, it's very difficult to get a gun today. There's a whole process right. you have to go to, as there should be. And the number um, of people that have concealed carry, might you might be able to count them on one hand. And Trudeau's well, own yeah, father, it, his, his own father had a, a could conceal carry. We're not the same, you know, we're also, we're not the same culture as the United States. And that's the reason our, our um, you know, that's a major reason that our, our, gun, our gun crimes are much lower. But I think Canadians agree that there should be sensible gun control. What I think happens, though, is that this government appeals to sort of this, the, like, in other words, any form of gun control is good. The argument, and I believe they even used it, if it saves one life of a child. Well, no, you, with respect, that's not how you craft good government policy. Um, you don't say that because then anything can be argued is, well, we have to do it. Um, you can, you know, that goes to the absurd. What we want is the most effective way to uh, control illegal guns in the country and to capture and get out of society the people who illegally use those illegal guns. And to, the, the idea that those people are going to be affected by by new restrictions on legal gun owners is simply, it's absurd. It, like, like, like as it was when they talked about, well, we'll have the provinces do it or we'll have the municipalities do it. Well, okay, so you see logically the troll government then, well, wait a minute, people who use guns to commit criminal offenses are not deterred by the criminal code. What makes you think they're going to be deterred by a municipal bylaw 
or a provincial regulation. It, the arguments that the government, the federal government offers consistently make no sense. No, if it's what about your Q goal. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's about virtue signaling. They're not interested in the outcomes. They just want to yeah. make it look and sound like they're doing the right things. They, but they do. Yeah, they, the way I would put it, they could them. be a lot more effective than they are if they weren't always virtue signaling. Very quickly, uh, I just have about 30 seconds here, but they're doing this this ban by grandfathering it, so you won't be able to to sell or transfer it or import handguns. So in a generation, the handguns will all be gone. But is 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 there any case to be made that this is uh, this violates I don't know property rights that you can't sell or transfer your own property? I would think that um, I would think that probably the argument would there would be there would be a charter issue, and the argument would be that the, the government has the right to restrict um, you know freedoms if it has a reasonable um, reason to do so. And, and and you know I don't know how courts would interpret that, but that would be the government's argument. Uh, you know, and it, it's left to wiser people than me about whether that is a, a charter infringement. But but to me, um, guns won't be gone in a generation or two. Um, this this government here won't be here forever, and things will change again. But until we start, to me, targeting the people who commit the crime and use the illegal guns and where they come from, we're not going to get anywhere significant. Amen to that. Laurie, thank you so much, as always. Take care. Laurie Goldstein, Toronto Sun. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. All right, when we come back... The Sofa Cinephile unpacks the 4K version of the most viewed film in movie history. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. The Sofa Cinephile. On the Richard Serrett Show. See you reach the wizard. All right, there you go. No mistaking that. The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Bert Lahr, Jack Haley, 
Margaret Hamilton, who scared the living daylights out of me as a kid. <laughs> Her and the Flying Monkeys here to unpack the 4K version of this spectacular film. The sofa cinephile Jim Salas is a passionate consumer of home theater technology and owner of the largest private collection of DVDs and Blu-ray discs in Ontario. Jim, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Richard. How are you? Very well. All right. So is this a, a, a relatively new release on 4K or has it been a uh, it's been out for about a year now in 4K, and I finally got my hands on it and was absolutely blown away when I saw it. So I thought we should talk about it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's so much to talk about. We could talk all day just about all of the strange things that occurred off screen. Um, but, but before we do that, um, and I mentioned you, you, you told me that according to the Library of Congress, this is the most watched film in movie history. That, that's correct. It was released in 1939. And for some context, sound in movies had only been introduced 12 years earlier. And Technicolor was, had only been introduced four years before that. So it's very early in, in, in uh, color movie days. So when it was introduced in 1939 in the theaters, it only did modestly well because a lot of the theaters weren't able to actually show Technicolor. Ah, interesting. I didn't know that. So they re-released it in 1949, did very well. And then... It went on TV for the first time in 1959 on the CBS network. And that's when it became the, the most watched movie ever because annually, or at least twice a year, we'd all catch it on television. You know, we'd all right. gather around the TV and watch The Wizard of Oz. Yes. And again, be traumatized by the flying monkeys. It, it used to air on uh, Halloween, as I recall. It's a great Halloween film for, uh, for the youngsters, really, when you think about it. Right. Uh, and again, off screen, a bit of a horror show, too. I mean, that movie was a death trap. There were there were a couple of serious mishaps. The first was with uh, Buddy Ebsen, who was first cast to play the Tin Man. And Buddy Ebsen, you might remember, was in uh, Beverly Hillbillies as Jet Clampett. Yes. And then he had his own uh, TV show, uh, Barnaby Jones, The Private Eye. That's right. Well, he had a severe allergic reaction to the aluminum powder made to uh, used to make him look silver. Like, the, And uh, he ended up in the hospital, almost died. It, wow. was, it was horrible. And so he was then replaced by Jack Haley and they had, and they, they wisened up and used white grease paint underneath the aluminum powder to prevent the same thing happening to Jack. Interesting. Now I had learned also, um, you probably knew this, but when you hear the soundtrack and even when you hear the songs in the movie, a lot of those are Buddy Epson's voice. They didn't bother to re-record them. They, the, the group recordings, they didn't re-record where he was talking on his own or singing on his own, right. they used they used Jack Hayley. Ah, okay, just in the group recordings. All right, and then and then the next thing that happened was with Margaret Hamilton, who who played the Wicked Witch of the West. And didn't she do a brilliant job of, of oh, that role? Yes, unforgettable. But it, in one particular scene where they where they uh, there's an explosion where she has to disappear in this cloud of uh, of smoke. She was using green copper colored powder to make herself look green. Right, that caught fire. And it burned her face and it burned her hands and she was in the hospital for three months before they could continue filming. So there were a couple of uh, serious mishaps during the production of uh, this beautiful movie. Right. And then there's poor Judy Garland. I mean, they were giving her a steady stream of adrenaline shots to keep her pepped up and then seek a second all to help her sleep at night. They had her on this ridiculous uh, diet, coffee and chicken soup and cigarettes to suppress her appetite. And then they had her in those ridiculous corsets. Poor thing. She was, only, she was only 17 years old at the time, and they were working like sometimes from four o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night. It was a very, very grueling schedule. 
All right. But here's so, a couple of fun facts for you. Yes. It wasn't all doom and gloom. <laughs> One of them is that the, the horses that you see that are multicolored, yes. they, use, they use jello powder to make the different colors on the horses. Ah, all right. And, uh, and the Tin Man silver outfit was actually muslin with leather on the outside. It wasn't actually metal. Right. And so in the scenes where Judy Garland is oiling the Tin Man, she's yes. actually using chocolate syrup. Ah, very not, clever. Uh, not, not oil. Very clever. All right. So um, we got to get to the good stuff. I mean, this, it looks brilliant all on its own, even though it was made in 39, as you say, shot in Technicolor. But how does it look on 4K? How could they possibly improve it? Richard, it looks marvelous. It's, it's like a miracle in terms of how this film looks. I can't overstate how beautiful it is. And the reason for this is, is when you make a 4K of a movie that's been shot on film, the original film actually has an infinite density. It doesn't start out with pixels. There's no information loss. So if, you, if your studio spends money and does a, a high-quality 8K scan, and spends the time cleaning it up, it'll look absolutely fantastic. Now, you have to keep in mind that there's 2.4 kilometers of film, over wow. 1.3 million frames wow. that have to be scanned in. And scanning at 8K is four times as expensive as doing it at 4K because the density of the pixel is that much higher. But, but the thing is, between those pixels, the fewer there are, the, the bigger the information loss because you have a little star shape be- between the circles that is blank. There's nothing there. Uh-huh. So you have to increase the pixel density to try to catch everything that's actually on the film. And when they do it in 8K, it looks absolutely brilliant. The colors leap off the screen. Her ruby slippers look like they've been powered by lasers, even in the long shots. <laughs> oh, man. It, it really is worth seeing. It's a, it's a must-own 4K disc. All right. Now, you have a fabulous prize to give away here. I do. I have a Blu-ray of uh, The Wizard of Oz. And... Uh, the question to qualify for winning, it, for winning it is, what was actually used to oil the Tin Man's joints? And a hint is it wasn't oil. What was used to oil the Tin Man's joints? All right, we'll take the first correct answer at richard at saga960am.ca. Richard at saga960am.ca for a, a copy of the wonderful um, Wizard of Oz 4K on Blu-ray. Jim, great job as always. Thank you so much. Take care, Richard. First we filled your mind. Now, let's twist it. This is... (laughs) The Lim Riddler. Happy Friday, Lim Riddler. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Richard, yourself. Very well, very well. We are... uh, We're springing into summer. It's just glorious out there. Awesome. Uh, all right, so um, this week's Lim Riddle, it's an, it's an homage to Captain Kirk. Trekkies out there. All right. So it's called Captain Kirk's Stories. We're looking for a, a one-word uh, answer that solves each of these four uh, Lim Riddle clues. Let's have Captain Kirk's Stories. Captain Kirk stored all his stories to tell process protecting your laptop for self. Exponent required for product desired. From what did they build Montebello's hotel? All right. Again, looking for a one-word answer that uh, that answers each of these uh, Limriddle clues. Send your answer to 
info at limriddles.com. Info at limriddles.com. Put 960 in the subject line. That way we know you heard it here on the radio. While you're at limriddles.com, be sure to uh, to register. And then you get the uh, Limriddles to, uh, delivered to your email inbox every Friday. That way it's uh, it's easier to, to solve the riddle when you can read it rather than hearing it on the radio. Again, info at limriddles.com for your answer. Be listening just before the news at 6 when I reveal the answer and announce the names of the winners. Lim Riddler, you have a terrific weekend. You too, Richard. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bye for now. Bye for now. The Limb Riddler. <laughs> Solve this puzzle. The Limb Riddler. Every Friday at 4.50 on The Richard Serrett Show on Saga 9.60 a.m. All right, don't go away. Two, uh, hour two uh, awaits uh, Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph. More on the provincial election. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Welcome to Hour 2, and if you missed Hour 1, you missed a whole bunch, but don't despair. Plenty of great program still coming your way. Jim Carajalios will be here towards the tail end of the program. 
leader of the new blue party and uh, maybe not exactly the uh, result he was hoping for. The uh, New Blues did not elect a single MPP to Queen's Park, and their lone MPP from the last session, Belinda Carajalios, uh, who was the MPP for the riding of Cambridge, uh, did not win her seat. That went went, um, PC as well, as did much of the province. 83, I believe. Is that the last count? 83 seats for the uh, the PCs improving it's interesting because typically over time you see uh, you know a large majority will get kind of winnowed away if you will um, but in this case he actually improved on uh, it was 76 seats last time in 2018 and he's improved that to 83 and of course uh, well we'll get into that in a moment here with Wyatt Claypool senior contributor with the National Telegraph just a, uh, another heads up coming up a little bit later this hour the great Greg Carrasco will be here host of the Greg Carrasco show heard Saturday mornings 8 to 11 here on Saga 960 and uh, Art Moore from WND will be here now this is interesting Dinesh D'Souza's movie 2000 Mules which is a probe into alleged orchestrated, widespread, well, not widespread, uh, systematic, focused, like a laser, uh, voter fraud in the 2020 U.S. presidential election that seems to have been given some credence uh, after news that a prominent Arizona Democrat has been charged with a vote fraud scheme, again, tied to the 2000 Mules probe. So Art Moore will be here with that one. All right. Last night's provincial election, the highs, the lows, and everything in between. Again, Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. Please support independent media, thenationaltelegraph.com. Hey, Wyatt, welcome back. How are you, buddy? Not too bad. So the first thing that uh, I think we should address, and that is, to me, this should have been the most Well, it was, regardless of the voter turnout. This was the most important provincial election in my lifetime, given what has preceded the last two years. And we won't go through the litany of woe with the lockdowns and the businesses being shuttered and all of that stuff. We know that. Yet, 43%, just 43% of Ontarians bothered to even cast a ballot. What are your thoughts? I mean, to me, this is a huge disappointment and and really not a, a good sign for democracy. Yeah, like, I don't want to be too trite and say, well, it's a historic election, because to a certain extent, everyone says that every election, but it is historic in just how, like, anti-change of an election it was, where people, anyone who did show up, which was, like, like, as you said, less than half of Ontarians, basically just voted for whatever they currently had, which it wasn't, like, I, like, it's pretty baffling considering you couldn't see anyone having their socks knocked off by the, by Doug Ford's performance. It was like the most reluctant electorate you've ever seen. And I think that's kind of the fault of all the major parties, which kind of made it so boring and people didn't really look into any of their issues and just kind of voted PC. Right. Right. Uh, so as a result, the, um, the liberals once again, I call them the redundant party because there already is a provincial liberal party that's more successful and it's led by Doug Ford. So Stephen Del Duca, again, uh, failing to win a seat and also failing to propel the, uh, the party into official uh, status. He stepped down. 
So too did Andrea Horvath after uh, this is her this was her fourth election cycle, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure in terms of seat count, but I don't think the NDP. I think they did pretty much the same, didn't they? Um, yeah, yeah. In terms of seat count, uh, I think they they did drop some seats because the Liberals did, definitely didn't pick any up, and the Conservatives oh. picked them up. So the Conservatives right. did shave off some from the NDP. But in terms of like, uh, I think the vote percentage they didn't fall that much. It was just their votes got very concentrated in public union kind of ridings or ridings that they had multi-term incumbents in, uh, but they didn't do very well outside of those areas. All right. So no, no surprise there with Del Duca uh, stepping down. Um, were you at all surprised that Horvath decided to step down? Uh, no, she had she'd run for office more times than William Jennings Bryan, and at some point needed to sort of go away. Uh, like, I, like, I always, you, you want to give someone, like, I, like I, I'm not an NDP voter, but I understand that the feeling that you want to give someone an extra kick at the can every once in a while. It's like, even I might, even though I didn't love him, if, if uh, Andrew Shear was the uh, leader for another election after the 2019 one, I'd get it. Fair enough, he didn't do that bad. But it's like Andrea Horvath. And she did well in our third attempt, but it wasn't because of her. It was just because of Kathleen Wynne. And then you were assuming that she was going to beat Doug Ford the second time. It, it's kind of an example, even though I don't like Doug Ford. Uh, it's kind of an example of why Hillary Clinton ended up shuttering her uh, her look into running for president again for 2020, uh, for, sorry, 2024. It was just once people have seen you lose, they don't really want to see you lose again. Right. Um, a couple of interesting things, uh, and this is just – I guess, a an artifact of our parliamentary system. But you mentioned, you know, the percentage vote and so forth. If you look at the Liberal and the NDP vote for 2022, for, for last night's election, only 2,000 votes uh, difference. Uh, the NDP, 1,098,646. The Liberals, 1,100,000. I mean, is this correct? I'm looking at raw vote totals, and that's what it says – uh, and yet the NDP end up with, what, 29 and the Liberals with nine. And yet they had 2,000 more votes. How does that happen? It, it, it's just one of those things where when you look at the Liberal platform, it is trying to appeal to every single person and their dog. So they end up just sort of getting these, like a thin kind of smear of their votes out everywhere. And then they don't end up picking up a lot of seats. So it's like if you're only appealing to like 20% of everyone in every single riding, you're not going to win much. But if you're the NDP where you where you only win 10% in some ridings, but then you win 35% or 40% others, uh, I guess like that our system kind of rewards that if you can concentrate support in certain ridings. Right. The other thing, again, as I mentioned, uh, for the conservatives, uh, no, I, I hate calling them the conservatives. They're not the conservatives. They're the radical the progressive party. Yes, the progressives. Uh, 43%, or, um, sorry, 40%, just over 40% of the popular vote, and but 40% of the 43% that actually bothered to vote. And I know that this 18% is how our system, of people overall. Right, 18%, and yet they end up with a supermajority of 83 seats. Now, I know they that's lost. They, they had less, sorry, I'm not sorry, I'm cutting you off a bit, but no. like they, they had less votes than the NDP did for that second place loss. Last election, and they didn't. It wasn't like a minority government they lost. They like it was, of course, a majority government last time for Ford, and Ford got less votes than Hor- Andrew Horvath last time. That's right. In 2018, the NDP registered just under two million votes one one million nine hundred twenty nine thousand, and uh, this this term this election, 
the uh, progressives got less than that, 1,892,962, and yet they, they get a, a, an 83-seat, uh, or they're a supermajority with 83 seats. That is just um, bizarre. This really, this, this really goes to show kind of the insidiousness of the vote split argument. Anyone who bought into the, we have to vote for the conservatives or we're going to split the vote, that, that's not, that has no tactical value. Clearly, the conservatives didn't need certain votes of people who would have voted new blue in order to win. And what, I would just say to anyone who makes that argument every single election when a, when a better alternative comes around, when is the election when you stop voting for the party that you're fearing uh, a vote split hurting? It, right. It's just never going to happen. I think that people have to start thinking for themselves because I think part of why people don't vote in these elections is that they only think of the election as the four main parties the, you know, like with the Greens kind of barely being in there. Does the Liberal Party in this province uh, have a future? I think they will. I think they will because I, the NDPA just in every single uh, level of government uh, tends to have a habit of shooting themselves in the foot, either doubling down on kind of uh, radical woke uh, activists as their, as their main base instead of blue collar workers, just the way that the NDP did federally after Jack Layton left and what they're currently doing with uh, Jagmeet Singh. The Liberal Party tends to have at least a few sensible people that kind of brings them back to just being the uh, the, the high spending version of the sort of PCs. So or the higher spending version, it's really hard to even see the difference between them at this point. But uh, I guess if Doug Ford stays in the position he is in terms of like the political spectrum, I guess, I think you could see that the end of the liberals going away because he's kind of monopolized their vote. That's the only way I kind of see the NDP staying in second place is if they kind of just keep their foothold in all the union areas and the liberals be kind of become irrelevant because the progressive party has kind of taken all their votes. I don't know. It's a bit of a toss-up whether they come back or not. Wyatt, stay put if you could, and we'll come back and discuss uh, the provincial election last night uh, some more. Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with The National Telegraph, thenationaltelegraph.com. Back with more right after these. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Wyatt Claypool stays with us, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, thenationaltelegraph.com. And we're talking about uh, last night, the uh, election results. And of course, the the progressives, almost caught myself calling them conservatives. Naughty, naughty, Richard. Uh, The progressives surging to a a second consecutive majority government. Last night, the NDP losing some seats. The liberals failing to secure official party status once again. And... um, I want to ask you about the other, uh, if you look at the raw vote totals again, the other parties, of course, uh, that would be the New Blue Party of Ontario, their first election cycle, and uh, the Ontario Party. And uh, in 2018, uh, 99,000 votes total, and this time around, 261,000, so more than doubling uh, their vote. Do you think that's significant? Is Is that the beginning of a trend, do you think? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that you could see this actually turning into something over time. Like, the, the funny thing is that even though it's like such an anti-change election in terms of the actual, um, in terms of the actual vote count, uh, or, or, or sorry, seat count, is that in terms of the vote, you actually do see like a sort of a nugget of people in the electorate who are paying attention, who are dissatisfied. 
And I could see that spreading both when it comes to left-wing alternative parties like the Green Party, as well as kind of ones on the right with like the New Blue on Ontario Party. And to a certain extent, you can really count the New Blue and Ontario Party's votes together because Ontario Party, to a certain extent, is just a watered-down version of the New Blue Party. Uh, and like I could see it sort of shifting towards them over time. So really, it's more so the New Blue Ontario Party together is actually a significant proportion of the electorate. Um, getting back to the the, the, the uh, Doug Ford Progressive Party, and again, I, I would have thought the low voter turnout would have hurt them, but it didn't. Can you explain why it didn't? Uh, and yeah, and and the thing is, generally, when uh, like you were saying before, when a majority government in power, it tends to be harder for them to maintain their seats. Uh, like uh, they're ma- basically just trying to maintain because it's very easy to lose seats when you have the majority of them. It's easy for people to mount campaigns against their weaker candidates, pool resources there, and trying to remove them from office. But they end up increasing. Uh, they end up increasing their seats, even though most COVID elections or post-COVID elections have been hurting the party in power. And I think it's just simply because the Liberal Party and the NDP were managed so poorly. They played exactly into Doug Ford's hands, who's been moving to the left. And then the NDP and the liberals to be able to keep calling him some sort of right wing fascist or something stupid like that. They moved significantly to the left to a very discomforting place for most voters so that they could still maintain that somehow Doug Ford was too conservative for Ontario, even though Doug Ford is where Kathleen Wynne was in 2014 now. So does that does that hold out at least some hope that that he might uh move a little bit further to the right now that he has secured another four years, now that he has used utilized that strategy and basically destroyed the provincial wing of the Liberal Party and uh, the NDP really basically, you know, spinning their wheels, does that mean now he has a license and will likely start um, governing more right of center? I don't actually think so. I think that generally politicians, whatever they get elected on, that's what they're going to govern like. I think Doug Ford feels like he has the perfect formula for getting elected. Like, hey, I got an even bigger majority the second time than the first time, and I didn't even need that many voters to show up. I think he's going to sit right where he is unless there's a lot of pressure on the right for him to move. So it's like if you see him and maybe try to put Ontario under more COVID restrictions come the fall because flu cases slightly rise, then you might see the growth of the new blue party and people within the PC say, okay, we're, we actually might lose some seats next time around if you don't actually move back to the right. But I think that Doug Ford, unless he's heavily pressured, is going to stick right where he is. All right. Uh, speaking of which, do you, uh, do you, um, in your worst nightmares, do you, do you think that uh, we're looking at more lockdowns as a result of the election result come the fall? I don't think any politician in Canada, even Justin Trudeau, is stupid enough to put back in place lockdowns. Not that the federal government could put in place lockdowns. But I think most of them are just going to stick to COVID restrictions, virtue signaling type, uh, just uh, just like meaningless Band-Aid solutions to things that the government can't control anyways. You know, you could see like like Toronto uh, putting back in place mask mandates, but Doug Ford allowing them to, Doug Ford maybe putting in passports again during the fall, but he'll do sort of these more minor restrictions to pretend like, to virtue signal that he cares, while knowing that if you went back to lockdowns, that's when you start seeing a drought of support from the PC party. All right. Wyatt, always appreciate your, uh, your insights. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with 
the National Telegraph, and again, please support independent media, visit thenationaltelegraph.com, thenationaltelegraph.com. I uh, just wanted to announce the uh, winner earlier with the Sofa Cinephile. Uh, he offered up a wonderful prize. It's the 4K Blu-ray edition of The Wizard of Oz. And uh, our winner is Vaughn Dunn of Orangeville. Vaughn Dunn of Orangeville, congratulations. We'll be sending that out uh, to you. All right. Uh, when we come back, what do we have coming up next? Oh, yes. Our good friend Art Moore from WND. Stay tuned. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. This next story may give some further credence to Dinesh D'Souza's documentary film, 2000 Mules, which is a um, documenting the uh, probe into election fraud in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. An Arizona woman... A prominent Democrat, in fact, in Arizona has been charged with using her status as a well-known operative to participate in an alleged ballot trafficking scheme in the 2020 election. And uh, again, this is the type of thing that was featured in Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, 2000 Mules. Here with more is Art Moore, author at uh, WND and co-author of See Something, Say Nothing. Hey, Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, thanks, Richard. Doing well. Fine, thanks. Uh, so can you uh, explain how this alleged ballot trafficking scheme that this um, Arizona woman, uh, Guayermina Fuentes, uh, w- w- that she participated in? What, what was this scheme all about? How did it work? Yeah. So so what the allegation is, and, and she, by the way, she pleaded guilty in court yesterday. So the allegation is, is that she um, set up this uh, table outside of a cultural center in the town of San Luis, which I think is southern Arizona, closer to the border. And uh, it was on the day of the primary election and uh, just a card table. But she was collecting uh, mail-in ballots there. And uh, what the allegation is, is that she uh, apparently uh, marked those ballots at some point and deposited them in a ballot box. So uh, in, in this case, you know, there, there's only uh, a, a small number of ballots that, of course, would not be enough to uh, to swing most elections. But um, the thing about it is, is that uh, for one, in this particular uh, investigation, uh, the investigators say there's a lot more there. But this is really more importantly, I think, just evidence to back what. Uh, the true the vote investigation that was featured in this film that you're talking about uh, is is trying to tell us is that there's a, an organized uh, scheme that uh, they believe was targeting the key battleground states, the key uh, areas, in fact, of of states that could go either way in the election, and that there was this this organized ring in which they exploited the mail-in ballots. They were able to get collect these ballots uh, and presumably mark them for a particular candidate and then deposit them in these uh, ballot deposit boxes, which are relatively new to our our voting. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Right. So again, um, she's a prominent Arizona Democrat in San Luis. Um, and she set it, sets up this table. So people uh, who had mail-in ballots, she, I guess, what, encouraged them rather than, you know, fill them out and mail them yourself, just bring them to me. And she would fill them out, obviously voting for Joe Biden. And then she would gather them and then mail them herself. That, that's right. And, and she didn't have to mail them because of these ballot boxes that are set right. up, which makes it a lot easier. Uh, you, you can just simply, uh, you know, take take a little handful of them, which is what uh, this investigation by True the Vote found and take you know maybe a dozen of them and and put them in uh, all at once rather than going through the mail where there'd be more scrutiny. Right. And so, um, as you say, she didn't do enough of these this ballot harvesting, obviously, on her own to flip the election in Arizona. Uh, but I think the point that was made in uh, Dinesh D'Souza's movie, 2000 Mules, is that if you have enough of these people and they're not they're not each doing thousands on their own because that would draw too much attention. But if you have enough of these people doing it and you add it all up, that could flip the election. That's right. And, and they found it in Georgia alone, which was a key battleground state and in the city of Atlanta, the biggest city there. They 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 found um, at least, I think, 242 people who were engaged in uh, distributing, um, I think, minimum 10, 10 ballots. And what they were doing was trying to to get a sample that they could be sure of. And so they know there are many, many more of these people involved. And an interesting thing is that uh, they, they used uh, cell phone uh, location tracking. And what they found is that these people that were going to many different uh, ballot boxes and depositing the ballots, that they had a, a path that went through some of the um, nonprofit organizations that are engaged in social and political activism. And they all tended to be um, left wing organizations. And actually, one of those organizations plays in this case that we're talking about in Arizona. And uh, in fact, uh, we, we know from an Associated Press report that uh, law enforcement officers searched the home of uh, one of the key figures in this nonprofit organization. It's an organization that you know helps uh, immigrants uh, and probably does a lot of good work, but clearly has an interest in, in big government that Democrats tend to support. And, uh, but it's interesting that, um, you know, they, they named the organization and uh, that, that there was in this investigation uh, scrutiny placed on them. So that's one of the big uh, parts of this whole investigation presented in the film that uh, is very intriguing, but we don't have a lot of information about. Uh, True the Vote has said 
we're not going to publicly reveal who these uh, groups are and, until we go farther down the, the road in seeing um, local law enforcement or even federal law enforcement engage in this uh, probe uh, and take the, take the data that's been uh, found through this independent investigation and actually do something with it. Uh, but again, uh, this this type of ballot harvesting uh, that this uh, San Louis uh, Democrat, St. Louis, Arizona Democrat was engaged in, this is exactly what was being talked about and probed in Dinesh D'Souza's uh, film, 2000 Mules. So perhaps uh, some vindication or giving it some credence. Uh, Art, uh, thank you so much. How do we uh, get a copy of See Something, Say Nothing, a Homeland Security Officer Exposes the government's submission to jihad. Yeah, sure. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I think the best way is through Amazon.com, and you can just uh, type in the search, see something, say nothing. And just very quickly, well, we haven't discussed this before, your co-author, Phil Haney, he, he was murdered. Did they ever find out what happened to Phil? So there was actually a report that came out long after we expected. It was uh, uh, more than two years later, and the official um conclusion was that it was self-inflicted and that was uh, made by the the county where where he died in cooperation with the fbi and uh there's a whole story there that would take a long time to to really uh, sort out and talk about but the official conclusion was that he took his own life all right art always appreciate your time thank you so much my pleasure art moore wnd WND wnd.com all right the great Greg Carrasco joins us next. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Something's happening here. There is indeed something happening here. Greg Carrasco, host of the Greg Carrasco Show, heard Saturday mornings 8 to 11 right here on the mighty Saga 960. Hey, Greg, how are you, my friend? I'm amazing. It's been an interesting week. Political developments, gun bans, you name it. Insanity. Yes. I mean, <laughs> remember we used to talk about like a, the 48-hour news cycle. Now it's the 48-minute news cycle. It's stuff comes at you. I mean, how are you able to process everything? You And, and uh, I know you don't just talk about what's in the news. You do talk a lot about it, but you also talk about cars. But, um, I mean, how do you... How do you process all of this information and, uh, you know, get it all said, everything that you want to get said in in a three-hour show? Well, it's exhausting, um, but also it's a, it's a tough thing. Like I asked you last week when you were on the show, thank you so much for being with me on air for an hour. Um, I loved having you there, and I oh, certainly likewise. hope that we do it again. Pleasure was mine. Um, well, thank you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible to, to put everything into words of what you're feeling, what you're thinking, uh, when you can never keep up on top of the topics that the, the, the media world is just literally hurling at you on a minute by minute basis. Uh, you know, whatever happened to COVID? Whatever happened to monkeypox? Whatever happened to Ukraine? Right. You know, it's, it's like, okay, what is, what is the topic of the day? And, uh, you know, we just try to, you know, sort through what is important. And I, I like to think that what is important to me is going to talk to a lot of people that listen to the show. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to go back to basics, ask people what they're thinking, and they'll tell you. And then we'll take it from there. So let's talk about what happened last night. And uh, 
So the uh, I call them the prog- progressive party. I don't use the the word the c word when I'm talking about. <laughs> how dare you! <laughs> uh, but eighty three seats, like a super majority, and uh, that with only when you when you break it down, forty percent of um, eligible voters voted last night, which I think is absolutely disgraceful. Forty three percent. Sorry, forty percent of eligible voters. He got 40, about 43%, or it's the other way around. Sorry. He got 43% of 40%, mm-hmm. which, which comes out to about 18% of eligible voters voted, and they, they end up with 83 seats. I mean, that there's a problem, I think, there with the system, but that's how the system works. That's the one we have, so be it. But the fact that only 40% of eligible voters even bothered to vote, to me, that's just, I don't know, it's so disappointing. What do you think? I think that, uh, you know, Canadians are so disheartened with politicians. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it was Plato who said that the fate of those who don't care about politics is left to those that do. And uh, I think that, unfortunately, 17 percent of the population here in Ontario is going to call the shots for until the next election. But the same thing is happening federally, Richard. I mean, Justin Trudeau didn't get elected with much more than that. So the fact that, um, you know, we claim to have a proportional representation here, he's not my, I mean, he is my prime minister, but he's not my prime minister. He doesn't represent what I feel. But unfortunately, not enough people are engaged. And this is one of the biggest faults that we have here as a country. We are not engaged in politics. We like to talk about politics, but when it comes right down to it, we don't like to get engaged. And the ones that do get involved are considered to be radicals, are considered to be racist, are considered to be part of the fringe which is a very, very unfortunate label, which is, you know, typical um, tactic of the left. What do you got coming up on the big show tomorrow? You know, tomorrow we are, uh, the, the president of Ford, the CEO of Ford uh, Worldwide, uh, wants to end the dealership as we know it. And uh, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had because what's happening in the car industry right now is something that I've never seen in 30 years. Um, you know, you can't find what you want. There's no more negotiation. Commission sales is disappearing. Uh, we are becoming delivery centers. And, um, you know, that conversation needs to be had. Is the dealership, as we know, gone? Have we turned the corner? Uh, the other thing that we're going to talk about in the second hour, uh, Richard, is the fact that I believe that electric vehicles are a scam. And um, I, I am prepared to have that discussion with anyone. I watched a TED Talk this week that speaks about the actual carbon um, footprint of an electric vehicle, but from inception, from the moment that you put a shovel on the ground of disrupting the environment until the vehicle is, you know, again, buried somewhere because they are not biodegradable. And the, the environmental impact that an electric vehicle is it's significantly worse than an internal combustion engine. And uh, I think that that conversation must be had, especially with people that are in the car industry. Right, right. And and, and certainly not necessarily, you know, the ethical choice when you consider how cobalt is being mined in in, uh, in Africa, for example. In Africa, for sure. Child, child labor. Uh, it's it's not the ethical choice. And I had a recent conversation with Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel News talking about how uh, the federal government wants to put in more charging stations, but none of them are being used. None of them. Like they might get one car every couple of weeks. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's as you say, it's just it's a complete boondoggle. But what else do we expect from the feds? So. The last thing to to say is that, you know, there is a lot of talk about electric vehicles, but worldwide, they represent less than 2% of the overall vehicles being sold. 
So it's, it's, it's not, it seems to be a common thing these days that the small, very small minority of anything seems to have the loudest voice. And that applies to everything these days. All right. Well, the, uh, the silent majority, well-represented Saturday mornings, 8 to 11 on the Greg Carrasco Show. Greg, thank you so much as always, and you have a great weekend. You as well, Richard. Thank you so much. Greg Carrasco. All right, when we come back, Jim Carajalios, leader of the New Blue Party, with some final thoughts on the provincial election that was. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. When you look at the uh, the, the raw vote totals and uh, the the dismal turnout, it's just, it's, it's a real head-scratcher. Here we have the radical progressive party of Doug Ford Basically, 18%, he got 18% of um, all of eligible voters in Ontario because only 40% of people bothered to show up and cast a ballot. So with 18%, I mean, this is how our system works, but uh, still, 18% translates into 83 seats. It's it's remarkable. All right, Uh, the New Blue Party uh, did not... Uh, managed to elect uh, an MPP, and Belinda Carahelios, uh, MPP for Cambridge, will not be returning to the uh, the legislature. However, some some positives, nonetheless, and uh, here to tell us more about those positives, Jim Carahelios, leader of the New Blue Party. Jim, how are you? I'm great, Richard. How are you? We um we got on the map uh, yesterday with the election results, and we're really proud of our team. First election campaign for our party. We registered 124 candidates, 123 finished the race, and um, uh, we're the fifth largest party in Ontario provincial politics. There's no other uh, political party in their first campaign in recent history that I've been able to find uh, has been able to get as many votes and the vote share we got just under 3% in our first campaign. That includes doing better than the PPC in their first campaign in Ontario, doing better than the Greens did 38 years ago in their first campaign in Ontario. So a lot of positives for us to continue to grow uh, the new Blue Party of Ontario and raise awareness amongst Ontario voters who still, uh, you know, don't know that we are around in less than a year that we've been at 100 percent. That's obviously the biggest obstacle to breaking through as a brand new party is brand recognition, as you've pointed out a number of times, that you're going up against some establishment parties that have been around. In the case of the liberals and the uh, the progressives, 100 years, the NDP, six, seven, de- eight decades, seven decades, certainly. Um, so, so now in the in the, the next four years before the next election, what what will be your strategy to to dramatically raise that brand recognition of New Blue? There's uh, one proven way to get people to change their minds. And when we're talking about switching their votes from the establishment parties or coming out to vote, because many, uh, as you were saying, have given up. It's a one-on-one conversation with 10 million people. And obviously one person can't have that conversation, uh, but it requires building riding associations uh, even uh, bigger than they already are, uh, finding riding leaders, working with our candidates and those who may want to run next time and building the party from the grassroots up. One-on-one conversations with the uh, 10 million plus voters in Ontario. And if you really think about it, Ontario voters have been having one-on-one conversations about the establishment parties for most of their lives, whether it's 
talking to your grandfather, or your grandmother about one of the parties they used to vote for, uh, a cousin, an uncle, uh, friends and family. And New Blue has to become part of those conversations with every single voter. I know you're not one given to, to sour grapes, but I, I want to just ask you a little bit about the way New Blue was treated by the legacy media. So, for example, the other day, it was on the eve of the election, City TV ran this piece uh, and they talked, uh, they had a political scientist on talking about, you know, whether New Blue was a fringe party or a splinter party. And then they had a, a trans activist person on basically accusing New Blue uh, and uh, the other party, Ontario Party, of being, you know, racists and homophobes and, and so forth. Uh, my understanding is New Blue was never contacted by the city TV reporter. Um, is that Has that been sort of indicative of, of the way your party was treated by the legacy media? Uh, no, actually, because their first uh, plan was to ignore us. And then um, uh, Derek Sloan being in the mix was uh, by design so that they could confuse voters and say, oh, there's so many of these new parties and, and uh, Sloan's party ran uh, not even close to a full slate and half his candidates were paper candidates. And uh, they, the, you know, the good news is the establishment media had to do that hit piece on us the day before the vote because they were looking at the numbers probably. And, um, you know, we were already on the map. We were there. And they tried their best to ignore us, as did the establishment parties. And uh, going into the election, it was pretty clear that we were going to get uh, over 100,000 Ontarians voting for us and uh, get on the map. And when you get to that point, they got no other option but to uh, attack you. When you look at the raw data or the raw vote totals, and they're just grouping in uh, New Blue with the Ontario Party and whatever other parties as other. But uh, the other parties in 2018, just under 100,000 votes. This time, 261,000. And you had about half of those other votes. Um, is, that, uh, is that trend um, one of the, the, the positive takeaways f- for you? I mean, do you, do you see... You're, that you could double that again in the, in the next election cycle? Uh, absolutely, because, uh, you know, two-thirds of that vote in the others category, if you want to put us in others at this point, you know, we should probably change the name of the party to the other party <laughs> uh, because that's how the establishment media has been referring to us. Two-thirds of those votes uh, were for New Blue, and we had a greater number of voters casting their ballots and trusting the New Blue um, in this election than all of the quote-unquote others had in the 2018 election combined. So uh, it's very clear we're the fifth largest party in Ontario provincial politics, and we got there much, much quicker than the Greens. It took the Greens decades to get to where they're at. Um, we even did better in Ontario per vote share than the PPC did federally in their first election campaign. And if you really think about it, Richard, me and Belinda are rather new to politics. It's really been four years Maxime Bernier, his dad was uh, a cabinet minister under Mulroney. He was a cabinet minister under Harper. National coverage ran for national leader of the federal conservatives, got to the end. Uh, Derek Sloan ran for national leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and was able to finish the race, repeat coverage for almost a year uh, running for that leadership position. And we were able to do better in our first try than those two parties uh, either did in Ontario. And so we're very, very proud of uh, how quickly we were able to get there, despite the fact that I was 
uh, ill in 2021 and had to rehabilitate and recover uh, uh, from a terrible diagnosis. And now I'm back and better than ever. So we didn't even have a full year at full speed to go. And all the obstacles thrown our way, people undermining my leadership, uh, people under the control of PC operatives. Uh, our team uh, was very happy uh, with the results last night, uh, despite the fact that we obviously would have wanted to retain the seat in Cambridge. All right, Jim, I uh, appreciate your uh, your time. I know you must be exhausted after a, a tough, uh, fast-paced campaign. Thank you so much. Not exhausted, rejuvenated. Rejuvenated. There you go. Well, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Carahalios, leader of the New Blue Party. And now, your Lim Riddler answer and this week's winners. All right. The answer to today's Lim Riddle, let me just uh, remind you, the Lim Riddle was Captain Kirk stored all his stories to tell. Process protecting your laptop or cell. Exponent required for product desired. From what did they build Montebello's hotel? And the answer is log. The first five to answer correctly were Joe Nemet from Ridgeway, Tom Dibley from Halliburton, Rob McDonald, Constance Bay. These are all Ontario. Dave Dibley, uh, Oakville, and Bill Heller from Edinburgh, Texas. All right. Thank you for uh, all participating. Uh, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Declan. I'll be back next week to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you Monday at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Monday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. 
With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.